0: I'm Georgia White, I'm a uh, sheep and beef producer in um, Northwest New South Wales, and um, you're listening to Ag Watchers with uh, Andrew and Matt, here we go. There
1: you go,
2: perfect, that was very good. Takes a a lot of work off of us.
1: So So, we're
2: good. We've got Georgia White here as part of the Global Sheep Farming, what do you call it, Next Gen Sheep Farmers podcast series. So yeah, we've been around the world and back to Australia. The the leaders of sheep. So yes,
1: well,
0: it's quite an honour uh, to be get the tap on the shoulder. Really, I've been listening to all the other
2: I um, podcasts. I would, not, so... I would not say it was an honour to be on the Ag Watchers podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's more of a poisoned oh, chalice. But
3: George is in esteemed company, but not because of who she's with now. It's because of the other sheep, global yeah. sheep forum uh, participants. I think that's what she meant. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely
0: some really interesting people that you guys have been uh, interviewing.
3: Mm. So before we before we get into it fully, we we, we just because you're an Australian uh, sheep producer, we and obviously cattle produces it as well, but we we can't leave let you off the hook with the uh, six cents. We've got to we've got to be consistent, apply the same pressure to all of the guests, don't we, Andrew? Yeah. Yep. yep.
2: Right. Oh. So you know what it is. you've you've heard the podcast before, so we don't have to explain it. But for for the new listeners, we ask six questions and oh, to, to yeah. get us to get a psychological analysis of our guests. <laughs> so what association first first thing that comes into mind, short answers or or one word. So Matt, you do you jump in?
3: Live shape export.
1: Um
2: I
0: don't really know anything about it other than uh, it's controversial (laughs) and it's important to our industry. Mulesing. Um, Controversial again. Uh, I don't do it, but um, important to the industry.
3: Um, Black pudding.
0: It's not for me.
2: The New South Wales election result.
0: Uh, it disappointed a lot of people.
1: Uh, Farm labour.
0: Um, complex and difficult.
2: Okay, um, and the last one. Yep. Okay, I'll make it make it nice and non-controversial. The PETA claims about oh. about wool being uh, harmful to sheep.
1: Um. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think they've uh, really looked into it that hard. That's
3: very well, what was, the, is that the one where you, they've got the image? Yeah, the, the, the
2: guy holding the oh The the, lamb. Or the
3: model holding the lamb and it looks like it's been through the mids or something, but, you know, trying to save it. Yeah. That, that's that one, is it? That, that, that's that one, yeah. the shearing is somehow. And uh,
2: that model, the supermodel from the 80s, the old one.
1: Oh, um, my gosh. Which wears? one?
2: Oh, I can't remember her name. I'm not, you know, I'm not into fashion, but I do. I do think that uh,
0: the shearing industry does have some some cultural issues that need to be uh, probably addressed. But for the most part, they're doing the right thing by the sheep, and uh, it's well, it's the industry that I'm in, um, and I love it. So, yeah.
3: Are you, are you referring, to, Georgia? Is that is that in relation to some of the shearing teams, or maybe? Not as professional. Yeah, is that what you kind of?
0: Yes, I think that not teams, but individuals. Yeah. Uh, maybe like have more of a old school mindset towards the sheep and um, how how they uh, should be getting things done.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so around the handling of the sheep and that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 Hmm. So not.
0: So for the most part people want to do the right thing, but it's just where they're, where their bar of uh the right thing is
1: mm.
2: are you <laughs> struggling are you, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll just we'll we'll jump into the conversation but we'll start off yeah. with sharing because that's uh it's an interesting discussion point at the moment because sharers are difficult to get
0: yeah yeah they are um we're very lucky we've got a local team we've been with the same team for like 20 years so um, there's a lot of loyalty both ways with mm. that and so we still a bit during COVID um, we, as everyone did to get the get the team like a lot of people were growing restocking after the drought growing more sheep and so all of a sudden like when the shed before us used to be a week now they're like three weeks worth of shearing and so that bumps us back and it, then it bumps everyone back and um, we struggled that way, but um, right now we're going, we're sitting pretty good. Our contractors, uh, he's pretty good. He runs on time.
1: You, we you, probably
2: you, should. You, you <laughs> sorry, because like, just while we're still on she- shearers, because you mentioned about like the animal welfare side of things when it comes to individuals, shearers and, and different sort of old school mentalities. But a couple of years ago, I remember in Victoria, do you remember that Matt? A couple of years ago, there was a lot of reports of, in Victoria, Especially
3: in a ice. Yeah, there was quite yeah.
2: a bit of ice addiction in yes. it was reported at least. I don't know if it's true. Um is that still an issue or has that been I was gonna say weeded out, but that might not be the right word to use. Yeah. Was that iced out? Um uh,
0: look, my team, I I uh I respect my team a lot, but what they do in their off time is their is their thing. Um, but I definitely don't think any of them are on the ice, but I do know, you know, you do hear of stories and, uh, I do think it is about, but I think it's about in every labor force. It's not just shearing.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah,
2: probably, and it, right? yeah. Truck drivers are pretty bad for it here as well.
1: But yeah.
3: Hmm. I was going to, um, before we kind of jump straight into the shearing aspect there, but we didn't really give you a chance, Georgia. You mentioned at the outset that you, you got a bit of a mixed enterprise there, but, um, we didn't get a, a, a quick rundown. So you're New South Wales oh. based, is that right?
0: Yeah, New South Wales. We're at um, Kula, uh, which is sort of um, two hours north uh, east of Dubbo.
3: Yep. Yep. Um, and so and so, your operation there, it's a family operation. That have, what are you running in terms of you've got cattle and sheep and a bit of a mix, yeah. is it both wool and, wool and prime lambs, or what are you...?
0: Yeah, so we um, is a family operation. Me and my brother are here together with our parents and uh, we're, my brother and I, are fifth generation on the farm. Um, we run, we've got about 4,000 merino ewes that we've joined this year, um, both to Border Leicester size and merino size, but with a focus on um, prime land production out of that. So they're dual purpose merinos. Uh, and we also have about 400 Angus cows and um, we run a few adjustment cattle as well.
3: Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, so you're saying you've got the merino there, but your focus is still on the prime lamb rather than the merino wool.
0: Yeah, well, we're about um, 18 to 19 micron wool, uh, non um, It's We sort of consider it to be a benefit, like a bonus, uh, rather than the main uh, area of our production, just because, you know, you can get, a lot, lot more out of your lambs than if you just focus on your wool, especially in our area. We're more focused on um, prime lamb, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And so and you're saying too, though, you, but you, you've elected, was, was the move away from mulesing, was that something you've done recently or is that something that's been, you know, kind of been around for a while for your operation?
0: Um, we did it in, well, my dad uh, decided to do it, uh, seven years ago, in the, when the start of the drought, he just thought it was just going to knock the lambs around too much, um, so he didn't do it. And that was back when uh, uh, dicloranol was uh, still good, um, still working for us, and um, it's not anymore. But uh, so yeah, he, he's like, oh, we'll, we'll just back a bit of chemical on them, and they'll be fine. And we had three years of drought, and they were fine. And, um, and then we started getting some insane seasons. So I don't know, uh, it's definitely not Australia-wide, but in New South Wales, we had three years of drought from 2017 to 2019. And the start of 2020, um, the clouds opened and we got like a ridiculous amount of rain. It just didn't stop raining for three years. So we had three years of rain and we had about 300 mils for those three years total. In the last three years we've had over a thousand mills every year
3: <laughs> not so, you went, so, so were, yeah. you, were you did you have any issues with flooding this last time around with the
1: yeah we're
0: in um, hill country so we get flash floods more than widespread yep. floods does it um, doesn't sit it so doesn't sit yeah no it'll come and go within a day but it still does a lot of damage we lost a lot of fencing Um and um, lots of erosion issues
3: as well with that kind of water that moving that fast. Yeah. And, yeah. So, the, and so that move away from using too, are you then now paying a bit more attention to your genetics there to try and yeah. kind of make it so that, that, that fly strike and issues like that are less of a problem? Just, you know, you're kind of breathing out the wrinkles type thing or
0: um not so much wrinkles we are aiming for a planar type sheep but we definitely wouldn't we're not srs or uh we definitely don't have plain uh sheep they do have skin um but we're more so yeah so as i mentioned that you know we were just putting chemical on them and that was working fine and then when it started raining uh, we actually had our maggots tested and it came back that we we're pretty much resistant to everything like a hundred percent like you had to be giving like seven times the dose rate of the major chemicals um, for it to even be effective for like two weeks, let alone three months, like the label says. So um, we got a electro dip and we can use ivermectin and uh, spinocide chemicals, they're still good, but uh, we're trying to move away from that. So now we sort of have made it a protocol that no adult you will get chemical put on it ever. Um, she just, if they get fly, they get treated and they get marked and then they get uh, sold out of our model Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, so and that's so where he's, yeah. Selecting, selecting for the types that are resistant to fly strike then.
0: Yeah. And with yeah. Um, doing that, we've got tail length set at um, the three joints. So they have like a really good strong pelvic area um, and they're not, Um, Weighing on themselves and stuff, so the tail sticks out and they're strong and um, we're not getting that much dag We're definitely managing, uh, making sure we don't get out of control worms and, like, not feeding them on um, weeds and things like that, that'll get them to scour. So um, trying to manage that, Uh, yeah, just trying to stick away from the chemicals as much as we can. So this year we've got away with, we jetted our lambs uh, in October so they're at weaning and uh, they haven't received any chemicals since. Do
2: you think the wider industry should go to mulesing or go to non-mulesing?
0: I think um, if uh, people like they have a similar production cycle to me where you've got the labour and you can afford to monitor and then cull those sheep out, it's definitely an option. Um, But I think when you start getting out into uh, like floodplain country out further west where you just can't even get to the sheep to check on them, it starts getting to be a huge animal welfare issue where there'll be natural selection, but they'll be dying rather than you culling them out yourself.
3: So it's it's animal welfare, (laughs) but not in the sense of animal welfare. Let's not do mulesing. It's animal welfare. We should do mulesing for the benefit of the animal. right? (laughs)
0: Yeah, for them, for yeah. those certain productions where you can't physically be checking on them all the time and have a like a higher labour input. Well, how, um, how, do you,
2: how do you explain that to Jenny or Jimmy in the city who doesn't I understand might, farming?
0: I think we might have missed the boat on explaining it. Yeah. I think I think that ship sailed. I think what? Well, yeah, that's my opinion. Whether that's what's going to happen or not is a uh, is a different thing. But uh, I do think everyone needs to be prepared that. Uh, whether mulesing's banned or not there'll certainly be a price in uh, wool price difference and um, surely even a meat price difference in the future
3: hmm. yeah just just because you it's a it's a it's a curious one though because like you said you, you indicated that for some for some operations they're doing the mulesing for animal welfare purposes so but then you know you you on the on the same hand you know the consumer is saying oh i don't want to see that and i'll pay a premium because i think that the sheep are getting careful better if they're not getting meals yeah. so it's, it's it is a it's I a mean, tricky
0: one but yeah. we should have probably as an industry started communicating better 20 years ago um but as an industry i think we just said no no we know better the consumer doesn't know what they're talking about just do as you're told and um it doesn't really work that way, and now we're caught where we can't explain ourselves because everyone's already made up their mind.
2: MG Bale. I was shopping on the weekend, <laughs> and was that smile for oh, me?
3: You, yeah, know, just, just kind of thinking of, of how much of a fashionista you are. So I would think you're shopping every weekend, nearly for some new outfit.
2: Clearly, with my band T-shirt from Bare Naked Ladies on, mm. from. 2003, when I went to see them last. Uh, anyway, because I noticed Cotton Australia had, not Cotton Australia, Country Road.
3: Country Road, yeah.
2: I uh, had sort of labels on them explaining the water use efficiency of cotton in Australia and why they use Australian cotton, which I thought was mm-hmm. pretty interesting. MG Bale as well had a lot of labels on there, some Merino uh, t shirts. Uh, jumpers yeah. and they had little labels on them saying that it was from you know northern Tasmania and it was you know traceable back to the farm it didn't mention anything about Mules but I wonder if it's better oh, off just not mention cool. it at all like a bit like the US Army you know don't ask don't tell
0: yeah I think uh, if you don't have it labeled there and you have all the other stuff I guess it's probably assumed even if it is Mules wool mm. but if you've got all the other credentials saying that this is where it's sourced and sustainably sourced then There might be an assumption, but I don't think you can get away with that forever. Uh, We are RWS certified, um, which is a global uh, quality assurance scheme, which is responsible wool. Um, And it's uh, it's very...
2: How much does
3: that cost you a year to run that then?
0: Oh, gosh, not very much. Uh, you get wool. you
3: get a you get a premium for your AWS certified don't We you?
0: haven't had a 20% premium in uh, our wool prices, our wool sale prices, ever since we joined up. Like we'll have comparable wool, it'll be the same wool or less quality, and we'll be getting prices 20% higher.
2: So why don't you buy wool from your neighbors that's <laughs> not approved and then just stick it in your in your bags? Stick it in your
0: bag. Because it's very heavily audited. So, yeah, but, we they're all not, have...
2: but they're not there at midnight, are they watching you?
0: <laughs> uh, no, but if I say I've only got 4,000 years, and then and st- all and of a sudden they've, I've they've, got they've, like
3: you're cutting thousand, nine kilo
1: of
0: wool, i <laughs> have yeah, yeah, got a thousand bales of wool for sale. Um, yeah, I think, no, but they are right on to you, like they come out and they make me like the last lady that came out. I had to go and catch a sheep and pull it over and prove to her that we we're cutting that three joint tail length, and um. They go right through everything, like biodiversity plans, um, biosecurity plans, making sure everything you're doing is up to scratch on the farm. Yeah.
2: I just want to add something else in about my fashion trip and my, my shopping. I did go into a hiking store on the weekend. Um, and I did pick up a polo shirt from icebreaker. Yep.
3: Mm, the New Zealand merino so one?
2: New Zealand merino wool, yeah. Supporting the uh, opposition. Wait, wait, wait. No, I'm not supporting the opposition. Well, there's
0: Australian producers that I produce for Icebreaker as well.
2: But I picked it up. It is exactly the same feeling yeah. and quality as that merino polo, the Australian one. which From
3: Steve which Steve Noah's, Noah's one? Yeah. Steve
2: Noah. Yeah. However, it was $200. Mm. And as a oh, Scotsman... Yeah. I'd rather pay $50 for the same. And also, I went into Uniqlo. What's that? It's like a Japanese... It's a Japanese
0: store, and they sell good quality merino products for not very much money. Like fifty dollars
2: really? for uh, Matt?
1: Yeah.
2: Only thing, Matt, is I want to say that I don't think the sizing will accommodate you will be, the, we'll
3: be the, the same problem when i was buying that shirted Maya that the, the, you, you might the have, sizing was it was uh, a bit like when i was buying underwear
2: in chile yeah uh, the choices were all undersized for uh for
3: the some, average australian man
2: yeah and and for you i think um you might be you might be struggling you know i, I was going to buy a merino jumper from there but the queue for fitting was too big and I didn't want to buy it off the rack without trying it on. And I thought taking my top off in the middle of the store would probably be... I didn't want to intimidate all the other men there. So, <laughs> so anyway, all I'm saying is that I think from my weekend look around the shops in Sydney that there seems to be a lot more prevalence of merino wool mm. and other schemes, but also just more... More obvious, like here's marine wool, here's cashmere, here's,
1: yeah,
3: whatever else, and not that expensive. When you um, you mentioned the one with that had the traceability thing. Was that one of those tags that you could scan a little code and it would show you the farm or something? Was that that one, the Tasmanian? No, i just,
2: just told you more. It, it was. I should have taken a picture of it, but it was something along the lines of our oh, wool comes from northern Tasmania. A lot of it comes from such and such family. So yeah. it wasn't really traceability. It was just saying basically it was Tasmanian.
0: Yeah, it's very difficult to trace, especially wool products, back to uh, just one producer because of the way that it's processed and that when buyers buy, they buy they might buy a heap of our wool to mix in with some lower grade wool to get the product that they want. So um, the
1: traceability on that's difficult.
2: No, you, you know what you can't trace. What the crude oil that goes into synthetic fibers. So yeah. you don't know if you don't know if that crude oil comes from Venezuela, Iran, or good quality, you know, democracy led Scottish oil. So yeah from the it. from the from the North Sea. From the North Sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From,
1: so. But they, sort of leading on
0: from that, the um the latest research that has been done on um like carbon uh, impact footprint of wool versus uh, cotton versus um, petroleum-based products has has been very disappointing for the wool industry for the results of that. But I think it has been um, slightly skewed, mostly because the oil companies funded it, but-
2: um, (laughs) So, So wool's got a worse carbon footprint than crude oil?
0: Oh yeah, by a long way, yeah in this particular report that has been funded by oil and, companies.
2: And cotton's better as well.
0: Cotton's better than wool, yeah, they said. Um, but it's because um, I think that some of the accounting is slightly flawed in that they don't really account for um, perennial gra- perennial native grasses yet for carbon sequestration and um, like They just want you to plant trees and stuff to lower your carbon impact. When that's not really, like for our property, if we plant trees, most of them die, or they just don't grow. We planted trees like 20 years ago, and they're like two meters tall. So what good's that done when our perennial grasses are sequestering a lot more carbon? But that's a whole different thing. In that, Um, but yes, so it's just another like thing that all. Maybe isn't seen as the most um carbon friendly product at the moment, unfortunately.
3: Hmm. You mentioned It's uh,
2: hard to believe that crude oil making food <laughs> make making clothing out of crude oil, which is basically fossil fuel well, it's fossil fuels, is yeah. more carbon yeah. neutral than
1: it's
0: because they they start the uh, account uh, they start the accounting from when they pull it out of the ground and turn it into a product there's no circularity to it so um yeah but they came out a year ago that study so hopefully people have moved on from it
3: you, you mentioned you mentioned Georgia as part of the rws accreditation that that also measures some Biodiversity type stuff on farm as well. Is so, and you, you just were talking about planting trees and carbon. There, are you are you guys doing anything in that space formally, or is this just stuff you've been doing just to kind of create um, an environment that's better for the livestock? Or you're not like as you're not part of a carbon capture program or anything like that at the moment?
0: Um, not really. We are actually a uh, study place for uh, the Nexus Study, which is a University of Melbourne, um, and they're re. Trying to redo the carbon accounting for farm places, and so they did some carbon accounting for us. Is that
3: is that Richard Eckhart? Is that his group? Mm. Yeah. Is that them?
0: Probably. It's been a while since I've communicated with them,
3: mm. but uh,
0: they definitely did come back and say that um, we what some areas we could improve on in our in our um, production cycle. But overall, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, um, and we are working on that. But maintaining ground cover. And keeping carbon levels in the soil Uh, high is uh, what we're trying to do. But that kind of kicks in the butt in the carbon accounting world because you sort of get rewarded if you've got a flogged out, clapped out block and then you make it good. But if you're already (laughs) doing the right thing, then, well, there's no reward.
2: Mm, That's one of the big challenges of current carbon markets.
0: I'd, I'd be better off like, to get my place to be more carbon neutral i would be better off just going and buying a block that's like an old cropping block that's all uh crusted up and no good and like deep ripping it and planting a heap of trees on it
1: hmm. true
0: doesn't make sense
2: no it doesn't and there's a whole bunch of challenges around carbon accounting and whatnot what about live export like just to, really, just, to, just, to, keep
0: just to keep it That's not my area of expertise. I, I don't really know a huge amount of it other than that it's really important to the um, Western producers in the country, um, to their market. Um, but I think that... And I do know some people that have worked on um, live, ship, live export boats and um, the standard that they have reported back to me is much higher than the media would report. Like, incredible standards of care, making sure every animal is... Is uh, happy
3: the whole way, yeah. It's funny though. I mean, obviously you're part of the sheep industry, but your first when we asked the question at the outset about live eggs, you, your first kind of answer was that you don't know a lot about it and not involved in it. And that I wonder if that's part of the issue with regards to you know it's very much a Western Australian thing nowadays, right? If you look back yeah. since the since the moratorium in 2018, so nearly the last five years, say so has been 98, 99 percent. Of the sheep that are transported on a ship go from Fremantle, so mm. you know. Whereas if you go back, say a decade or so ago, you had you had some seasons. Corporate. You had twenty, yeah, you had twenty percent coming out of New South like New South Wales, South Australia, and Victoria combined. You yeah. know, there, there were seasons back. You know, when 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 the um, when the live export trade was was operating at higher volumes, you would have some years where twenty percent would go from the southeastern states. Um, and nowadays, it's just not a not a doesn't happen, right? So I wonder if no. that's you know part of the part of the issue with why it's looking like the government's going to be able to phase it out reasonably easily is because it's really just the worst Australians that are there trying to trying to kind of advocate and, you're, you're- and um, yeah. You don't actually hear that much about it.
0: Not only the negative stuff.
3: we don't
2: even like. There's plenty of information out there. There's plenty of, like we're data centric, as a business. Mm. Like obviously, Ag Watchers is a is a hobby.
1: Yeah,
2: uh, and we we don't for for the listeners. We don't get paid for this. So if you see us, you know, feel free to buy us a beer. <laughs> um, but the, the the reality is, there's a lot of data out there that can be used to support the activities of the industry, but it's not out there. Yeah. it's not even it's not even appearing on social media from the advocacy groups. So. Yeah,
1: but
0: it's also a completely different production cycle than you would see uh, in the eastern states. Mm. Like the, it's it's sheep that they're exporting. It's not lamb. Yeah. Um, mostly it's pretty much all merinos. Yeah. So We're, merino um, weathers,
3: merino weathers yeah. mostly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there is like way more of a wool focus. Um, and
1: then
3: the live export is a good way to value out. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's just an interesting one that that, that um you know, I, I suspect that, that part of part of the reason why it's uh, it's the government's able to push it through so easily is because it's it's you know, it is such a Western centric thing nowadays. And and I mean you even look on social media, sometimes you get um, you know, or Southeast Australian producers uh, that are there saying they don't support the trade at all, and they happy to see it go kind of thing. their, their yeah. industry
0: is not reliant on it, <laughs> so I think they would find that if the, if the live export um, did end up getting banned over there or phased out, it would affect their industry or their production, just uh, not so directly.
3: Mm. Oh, in terms of in terms of additional sheep coming across from west to yeah. east, and yeah, yeah. and
0: uh, yeah, just having a lot more sheep in the in the uh, cycle here to be killed in Australia, a lot more sheep.
3: Yeah, yeah, I guess that's part of the the, the, the narrative though around the reduced numbers. Over like I think last year was just a fraction over five hundred thousand head that went live X because since the moratorium, mm. since the moratorium's taken a, a fair chunk out of the volume of the trade, you know, that three three months, sometimes four months, extending to four months out of the year where there's nothing being sent. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a circular argument by the government to say, oh, the industry's declining in volumes when part of that reason is because they're not Cut allowing it. them to go three months of the year. Mm. Um, yeah, but. Uh, I guess if you go you know, if you go back pre moratorium, you're talking you know closer to one and a half two million head. Um, mm. it's, it's a big difference. You know, um, it will be interesting to see how it plays out in WA because it does seem as though there are some. We were just Andrew and I were, over in WA last week, uh, and there were some West Australian producers that are seriously considering now whether they remain in in, in the sheep side or whether they just go you know crop. total cropping. Yeah,
2: so that'd be yeah. good, for, well, I- good. good for CBH.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't think I could do it if uh, if you have been squeezed that hard, um, and you've only got really one way to sell your product, and and the government's going, go, oh well, we're probably not going to do that anymore. I like in our shit.
2: How much is this, like I'm I'm not a livestock guy, but how much is a sheep in Western Australia? Somebody was telling me the other day, but I forgot. Oh,
3: no, well the the pricing. Very much there. money. No, <laughs> the pricing the pricing there compared to the east. I think they're twenty dollars. Mo- uh there are some that were getting sold at that. That's probably that's probably the low end. But, so that's twenty dollars I
2: mean, for a what
3: a mutton? Yeah, yeah, yeah a fully yeah.
0: grown sheep, but that oh, would be a very light one.
3: Yep. Yeah. So, um, what, what, what yeah.
2: that what would that be in kilos? Uh you'd
3: probably, you, you probably in probably terms like of twenty-five
0: a, kilos carcass weight. Carcass weight. Yeah, yeah. yeah, So
3: what would, that, um,
2: what would the meat be on that? How do you mean? Like how carcass weight, but that's got the bones and stuff in it. But how much meat would you get off that?
3: No, that is that is the carcass weight. 25 right. kilo would be, be the what what's it scored what well, that's what the estimate is of how much meat you'd get. Oh, it's it. So 25 kilos. Yeah. So you're probably talking about a 45 a a uh oh yeah, yeah. In terms of th- yeah, correct. Yeah. It's a
0: bit better than that. Um at the moment, especially over East, it's about three dollars um, a kilo.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, but definitely like I've got um about six hundred uh ewes that I want to put through. As met through the yards, but um, that like some of them just gonna be worth twenty bucks. Some will be worth fifty bucks. Some will be worth ninety bucks. But yeah, it's um, it's a better pill to swallow when two years ago they were worth hundred eighty bucks.
2: So there must have been people who are restocking at those really high numbers, expecting prices to stay relatively strong. And so so what, how does that trade work in that?
3: A lot of the a lot of the restocking was 2019. So not so not so much at the you know, if you're talking the big restocking, particularly in New South Wales, a lot of that occurred through uh, well after 2019, after the drought ended. Um so so and then a lot of them actually came from WA during 2020. There was I think 1.9 mm. million head came across from WA to mostly restock New South Wales. Um so yeah. You 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 wouldn't you know you wouldn't necessarily be saying that they've been restocking at the very high prices um, that we saw last year before before the market peaked. No. And but I
0: do but these aren't restocker sheep anyway. These are like cut like old old ewes that can't be in production yeah. anymore.
3: Cast for yeah. age stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, cast
0: for age stuff, or just like not uh, suitable for breeding, or something like that. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, the, and from that perspective, they've had, you know, you've been getting a return from them over the years in terms of what they've been lambing, you know, what they've been cutting. If you're cutting, you're yeah. So, so it's it's very much the, you know, end of the useful life co- price you get rather than selling something as a as a restock or as a prime lamb. It's a it's a different market. Mm.
1: Yeah.
3: Hmm.
0: And a lot of that is going over they uh, cry back it and go over to uh, Middle Eastern countries. They love it. It's not the kind of meat that I personally would love to eat, but it's got a lot of flavour.
3: I think it's something like 95% or more of our mutton is exported. So hardly, Mm. like if you go go back, so a decade or so ago, we were still eating some mutton in Australia, whereas now it's almost negligible, the amount of mutton Mm. that gets consumed domestically.
2: Do you know, like I like to always put an idea of how we mm. can help an industry?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Like when I've helped the wool industry by the crossbreds, by oh, yeah. encouraging kilt usage industry Australia. <laughs> I, I know where you. this is going. What? I know where this one's going. Where's this one going? Haggis. No, I've already used that one. Okay. Oh,
3: yes. All right. Okay. I'm, I'm
2: a man of many ideas. Of, All right. I'm a master of ideation. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is encourage soccer, or what's known around the world as football in Australia, mm. but specifically Scottish soccer, right? Mm. Because uh, every game of—I hate using the word soccer—every game of football you go to, you get mutton pie.
1: Oh, okay. So, oh, yeah. so,
2: so and they're beautiful. Mutton pie and a cup of bovril to drink it with. So if we had if everyone quit rugby and, and afl, and AFL. Mm-hmm. got into soccer, yeah. we got you know traditional mutton pies. We'd
3: be instead of the four instead of the four and twenty just changing yeah. out for mutton. You could do the same thing and just keep the AFL and keep the rugby and just, yeah, just... instead of just switch the uh, four and twenty, you know, true, uh, true. into could, a could mutton pie. Just gotta
2: use scotch yeah. pies that's it. Beautiful scotch pie, good when cold or good when hot.
0: I don't know about cold, cold That's of nice. mutton.
2: <laughs> That's beautiful. So anyway, I digress. What's the biggest <laughs> challenge facing you as a farmer in New South Wales?
0: Facing me as a farmer, um, I think that there's lots. Um, but I was just at the um, that farm default summit, the Rabobank conference uh, last got, week, and
2: never, never got an invite.
0: Oh, well, you don't have enough debt. Yeah. <laughs> but,
2: not sure that's the reason, but.
0: <laughs> um, they uh, definitely, like, the pretty much the theme throughout that was um, carbon neutrality and being able to be transparent through your business, through the whole supply chain and being able to be like, look, look at me. I'm not committing, I'm not um, committing anything to uh, climate change and, this is what I'm doing right. Um, I think that's it's going to be the biggest challenge to be transparent enough to prove that we're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but also just continuing the down that animal welfare track, and now I'm trying to be sustainable in that animal welfare. You know. Um, We're we're trying to be sustainable by not using as much chemical and not being reliant on um, mulesing and that kind of thing and having easy to manage flock. Um, And I think that, you know, trying to have a more sustainable flock for the whole country is definitely going to be a big challenge.
2: What about, are you using EID tax?
0: Oh, yeah, we're we're using EID tax. But that's, uh, well, what if they decide five years we're supposed to be? Or having EID as mandatory.
2: 2026
0: um, ish. That's going to be that's going to be a challenge for a lot of other producers, especially bigger scale than us. But it's not a challenge for us.
3: Did um, you um really doing it? Yeah. Did you choose to use them when the Victorian government made it compulsory, or did you were using them before that? Like, was it a decision just for you know the management of um, your stock or record? Yeah. So we definitely. So?
0: We definitely have, like, a much more um, hands-on management of our, like, individual management of our ewes. So, um, yeah, when we, when we, when we quit mulesing is when we started putting EIDs in all our female sheep um, and we record pretty much everything that happens to them, um, if they, like, uh, if they're born out of a maiden or a mature ewe, um, what group their sire was so we have like different sire groups As we, we don't do individual sire tracking but we have sire groups and who they'll join to um, if they've had twins singles triplets um if they yeah if they've been joined all that we've got all that recorded um so would that would that
3: then would that then demonstrate over time that you're able to make decisions to improve say the broader flock productivity based around knowing you know more characteristics of the individual sheep because of the yeah. Is that would you say? Sure. That,
1: yeah,
0: we've been doing a lot of trial work. Um, we had a pretty cool year in when the drought broke. Um, our we scanned like over one hundred and ninety percent. Um, then the slight merino to merino joinings.
3: That's pretty um, good. <laughs> that's pretty yeah, good. It's
0: pretty, <laughs> that's right up there. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, we sort of. Um, we didn't really know what to do. We've always had higher, higher rates, like 160, but never 190. And there was a heck of a lot of triplet-bearing ewes in that. I think we had 200 triplets or something, or mm. maybe 150. And um, we're like, oh, my God, they're all going to die. Like, we didn't... Because we triplet survivability... Like, ewe um, mortality is massive in triplet-bearing ewes. But, like, you'll get you'll get more lambs out of tweeners than you would out of triplets. Like, they just... Yeah yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, In terms of the marking, right by the time, yeah, yeah.
0: By the time yeah. you get to having a weanable um, animal, yeah. Um, but uh, so we, we actually got in touch with um, this guy called Jason Trump, who's a sheep yep. researcher. Yep, and,
3: we know Jason. Um, we know Jason you know quite James? well. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, we've, we've since become La- lifetime good
3: lifetime his lifetime year management program there. So is that what I'm? Yeah, doing? and he's yeah.
0: got lambs alive as well as yep. his own program, and he's got. Yep. So we did a lot of fun. Um, so he came up and he was like, "Well, this is perfect. We're going to do a heap of trials with these flocks to see what management works better um, and how to get better results, doing less and better uh, survivability." Um, so we did a lot of work. Um, in 2020 and 2021, because we had pretty good results. Again, the next year, um, uh, just about like getting that survivability to be better, um, and mm-hmm. how to get the most out of your use. One cool thing that um, we ha- I have discovered, along with the um, the bloke that we get our rams off um, Castle's Park, um, he is with, very similar in our um, management styles. Um, And so we both noticed that we were joining ewe lambs, Merino ewe lambs. And we also recall, we know like if they're triplet-born sheep and we had some stupid result, like a triplet-born lamb is like something like 10 times more likely to get in lamb as a ewe lamb. So at nine months old or seven months old than a twin or a single-born lamb. So that fertility is like so heritable. In both mm. of our flocks. We both
1: yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, we both have found that. So that's pretty cool. Um so yeah, every one of those triplet-born lambs is very precious to us and we try our best to keep them alive without going to like a fully shedded uh lambing system, which that's just not practical here.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned at the outset when we spoke about farm labour, I think you described it as being complex was the answer you used. Yeah. That, now, given it's a, you said it's a family operation and it's your fifth generation, yourself and your brother, so I presume... There's a lot of there's family members that are there on the farm, and you, your brother's also working on farm as well, I presume. Yeah, but yeah, so but you still obviously would have to bring people in at various times through the year, or you've got st- staff that are there as well. Is it been um, a, a difficult scenario with COVID and and just with the tight labour yeah. market? Yeah, the tight labour market, and I'm um,
0: like. We, so we don't employ anyone full time, but we do get people in for key periods, um, like uh, shearing. But like we might have an extra, um, like hand in the yards or something, or uh, landmarking times like that. But um, just finding someone that uh, understands or has the knowledge already, without you having to constantly hover over them. Is uh, so difficult. We did employ a backpacker for six months and he worked out really well, but it still was like a difficult learning curve, learning to manage someone when we've been a family farming scenario for so long and getting someone to fit into that as a full-time worker is hard, yeah.
3: Yeah, and so... so yeah, it is
1: complex, yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, is it like when you said, the like, have you noticed... Through through COVID scenario that the availability of backpackers really dried up completely. Like, was that was that kind yeah, of difficult it as did. well? If you,
0: um, yeah, there was like hardly any backpackers. Only the ones that were already in Australia, um, and um, but like backpackers, they don't really want to come to a family farm and dread sheep. Like, they want to go and drive tractors and. Um, chase cows up in the northern territory so we're not exactly set up for backpackers here um probably better suited to getting just contract labors in like specialist like bloke with a team of dogs and horses and that already knows but you do got to pay through your teeth for those kind of people mm. um, yeah
3: well they're, they're the good ones and the availability of it. that yeah. yeah but it's becoming more and more difficult to to find it's them i man. would expect yeah
0: yeah, very much so. Very difficult. And even if you do find one, they get booked up pretty quickly and all of a sudden you can't get them all over anymore. Yeah. Or
3: when you or when you need them. Yeah. Yeah. Or even if
0: yeah. yeah, but but then there's always someone with more money that can be like, Well, I'll give you fifty bucks an hour more than they can offer. So you just better come over here. Which is, yeah, it sucks, but it's totally fair. You've got to chase where the money is. If that's what you're worth, that's what you're worth.
3: Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, it's it's makes for a difficult scenario. I think too, with the um, Andrew and I've spoken about this a few times at conferencing as well. That because the backpacker numbers, I think, are starting to kind of climb back up again. They're not, they're not quite mm. at the levels that were pre-COVID, but they're they're moving up. Um, but now you've got with the with the free trade agreement with the UK, the whole of the UK-based backpackers don't need to do their stint in the country anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um so that what's that Andrew's about 20 or 30 percent, isn't
2: it? Uh, 25%, give or take. Yeah. Which, you know, most of them are if you're given the choice, let's be honest, if you're a 20-year-old choice of Byron Bay or Burke, what are you gonna choose? Yeah. And and <laughs> the, the, at the end of the day, the, the wages are still good in Byron Bay and wherever Else now. So yeah, it's, it. not, it's not like they can't they can't go to the city and save now. Especially if they stay tent or room or whatever bloody pommies.
3: Saving money on just having a bath once every week. Exactly. Right right? on.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, What was the other one I was thinking of? Big meat.
1: Oh, right. Um, Okay. Have you tried it? No. Have you? Mm
3: -hmm. We have, actually. We have tried it. Do we try it once or twice? I'm trying to think now. Once. Are you talking yeah. about well,
0: like? Talking about, like when I mush up a heap of random stuff and call it a meat patty, or are you talking about like the stuff they grow in the lab?
2: No, nah, well, stuff they made in the lab is not really commercially available. And it's no. yeah. and it's like $2,000 a steak because it's not commercialized. <laughs> yeah. And we tried the Beyond Meat Burger,
1: yeah,
2: which like, was surprisingly relatively close to a shit burger
1: <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> it wasn't as good as like a premium burger but it wasn't if you compared it to a rubbish mcdonald's burger or a hungry jack's burger it wasn't that different wasn't it's that different, different. yeah but the difference was it was expensive
1: right
0: yeah uh, i think I, that that's not probably to just corner a market that uh, when really that market all they really need to do is just eat more falafel
1: like, no, which
0: is probably
2: like, going to taste I, better. I do like falafel. But Me too. yeah That's, that's actually... what
0: I'm saying. Like, it's a, good, it's a good thing to eat. Like, you don't need to be chasing, like, this thing just because it's like, oh, this is a better burger for you. you well, know, I, think, animals.
2: I, f- I think a lot of people did. When those Beyond Meat burgers and the other one, I can't remember what it was called, came out. Impossible. Impossible, Impossible burgers. Burger. Mm. A lot of people went mm. out and just tried them just to see what it was like. Yeah. So the sales were pretty strong initially. Yeah. But, I well, think, I
0: think
2: and, but if you look at the, uh, what do you call it? Like, you've not been to that restaurant, Matt, but there's a monster in Canberra. It's, Is that a
3: vegan restaurant or something?
2: No, it's it was a normal restaurant, but then it switched to vegetarian. Mm. I'm not sure if it's vegetarian or vegan, but anyway, food's fantastic. And the same mm. as you've got an Indian. Indian vegetarian food's much better than Indian meat food.
1: Yeah,
0: well, vegetarian and vegan food is can be delicious when you're not trying to be
2: something else like fake
0: meat. Yeah, <laughs> when you just want to be good food, it's delicious.
2: You don't want to dress up your mutton as lamb.
0: Yeah, just just eat good falafel. Just eat good um, vegetarian spinach curries or dal's. Dal's one of my favourite things to get from wow. an Indian restaurant. That's completely
2: vegan. Well, that's, as Matt knows, I've got a nearby vegetarian. Cafe.
3: It's such a hipster, Andrew,
2: which is run by a meditation group. So it's a not for profit.
3: Is it one of those? Um, it's, it's like you used to Buddhist. get it in Melbourne. You used to get in Melbourne. The Hare Krishna's run it. It's a Hare yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Or
2: Buddhists uh, or something. I don't know. They all wear floaty outfits, which I don't <laughs> know. It's entirely health and safety conscious when you're in a kitchen. But you can get a dirt cheap coffee, which is admittedly hit or miss. So you either get a really good coffee or a really terrible coffee. But you can also get a dal, a huge bowl of dal, for about $6. Yeah. And it's always good.
0: Yeah. But it's pretty hard to stuff up dal. It's just lentils and, like...
2: Bit of curry powder. Bit of
0: curry powder, like turmeric, cumin.
2: That's pretty much
0: it. Mushed up, and it's delicious.
2: So for $10, you get a decent or terrible coffee and a dal.
0: Yeah,
2: how good. So there you go, and, and
0: and a lot of people in the world are living that way,
2: I'm
3: practic-
2: I'm practically vegetarian anyway, <laughs> apart from the platter of seafood I had on Sunday, <laughs> well, and and and, 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 the, uh, and the
3: black pudding for breakfast. <laughs> oh,
2: I didn't, I didn't tell you, Matt. I, don't, I have to send you this picture. This is completely unrelated to this podcast.
3: Hogberg tangent
2: It's a complete hogberg tangent, but it was. Yeah. Uh, I think the Canadians are trying to copy the Scottish people because I went to that Canadian bar yesterday Mm. and I saw on the menu, they had a special, a poutine pizza. So a pizza with cheese curds, chips, and gravy.
3: Mm. And what, then deep fried or?
2: Nah, if it was Scottish, it would be deep fried, but it was just normal, you know, wood fired. So it was missing an element. Mm. But so there is still innovation happening in this world.
1: Yeah. And, you, and, and you're complaining.
3: You're complaining about the uh, Impossible Burger, and and you just described a poutine pizza. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I've got. Mm-hmm. I took a picture of it. I'll, I'll send it around.
3: Sounds very carb heavy. It was
2: 100 you know? percent carbs, apart from the cheese curds. Mm-hmm.
0: So. so did you order it?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like it's not. Somehow I'd order again. But it was something that I thought. Well, if it's on the menu, I've got to, I've got to give that a try. And uh, it was, it was, it was terrible. That wasn't terrible, <laughs> but wasn't wasn't great either. Anyway. Yeah,
0: I feel like you'd enjoy the first three bites, and then the rest of it did just be looking well, at that, acid reflexes.
2: Yeah, that was pretty different. So anyway, we're probably on that tangent. We're probably you know come up to the end mm. before we start getting silly, and we're trying to keep this as a completely serious podcast. Otherwise. Annie will complain at us that it's not serious enough and it's, you know, it's shining a poor light on Australian agriculture <laughs> and, and the, the work of sheep producers, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, it's good to have you on. Mm-hmm. And, Thank you very much
0: for having
1: me.
2: And it wasn't, see, it wasn't too controversial. Yeah. No. Tried to make it, but, you know, you didn't bite. But uh, <laughs> we shall. Uh, we shall speak to you
1: soon.
3: All right. yeah, thanks for thanks. Thank, thank, thanks for chatting with us, George. see you when you've got nothing on.
1: Ciao Cheers. for now. Cheers.